Welcome to the Rockcast. I'm Travis Hobbs, and today we have a really important guest on, Dan Gates with Coloradans for Responsible Wildlife Management. Colorado is under attack like nothing we have ever seen before. It's over and over, year after year, by radical animal rights activists, and these guys really could use some help. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the recent wolf introduction, um, but we're really going to focus on two new ballot initiatives, number 91 and 101, the quote, prohibit trophy hunting initiatives. This is an attack on the North American model of wildlife conservation, sportsmen, and the hunting tradition. I'm asking, please get involved on this. You can go to savethehuntcolorado.com for more information. These guys are really leading the fight. Um, Dan's group is, they're right in the middle of this. This is a developing story and there's a lot of moving pieces, but we're going to try to watch this thing through and try to keep you all in the loop. I appreciate y'all listening. Let's get into this. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. So um, I have Dan Gates with Coloradans for Responsible Wildlife Management on the podcast. Um, Dan, I really appreciate you jumping on here. Thank you very much, Travis. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and try to instill a little bit of logic in our landscape conversation and uh, bring people up to speed and update them on not only what's happening in Colorado, but potentially the West. Yes. And I was super excited to get you on. Like we kind of mentioned when we were first talking, I, I, I've been so impressed with you guys and kind of you're taking the fight almost. And you guys are very heavily involved in Colorado and have been for a number of years. Um, I think from all sorts of different issues, I really, man, I got to tell you, like your mission statement, it's one of my, like, I, I don't know if you could have a better mission statement. I really appreciated that too. So. Well, that's one way that one thing we really tried to make sure that we weren't in competition for anybody else's dollars mm -hmm. and that most of the other acronym associations that we're probably all likely members of. Uh, could support in some capacity, or at least our members could. Yes. We're not a membership organization, uh, but the Coloradoans for Responsible Wildlife Management is a 501c4. Uh, it's it's a non-tax-deductible contribution organization. And what that means is that if somebody contributes to a 501c3, like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or Safari Club International, Mule Deer Foundation, they can get the tax benefits of that contribution. Whereas you're, you're contributing to an organization that's a C4, like what we are, and SCI even has an arm of a C4. It's not tax deductible because it actually goes toward the lobbying and legislative side of the fight, which most of the organizations don't have the capability to engage in. And so when we formulated CRWM back in 2016 and 17, a buddy of mine and myself, Chris Journey, uh, who's now in the deep in the wolf introduction side of things, uh, we thought that it was necessary 
to be proactive to try to formulate a C4 organization to provide lobbying representation and an education arm uh, through the Colorado State Capitol and the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission. And in doing so, we did that two years prior to the current governor's election, thinking that the landscape was going to change significantly mm -hmm. because we had Governor Hickenlooper at the time, who was a fairly moderate Democrat. But uh, Colorado hasn't had but one Republican governor in the last 40 some odd years. And we figured it was likely just because of the demographic changes that we were likely to turn around and get a, another Democratic governor. And from a sportsman and women conservation habitat perspective, we thought that we ought to up our game and try to get some representation at the Capitol. And we couldn't have timed it any better because in 2018, Governor Jared Polis was elected, uh, individual that came out of Congress. Uh, he's an openly gay governor who has a husband who is a staunch left-wing animal rights activist, extremist. Yes. Yep. And, and that's where a lot of the things have happened since since 2018, starting in Colorado. It was going that way to some degree before, but but it was a give and take. It was a punch for punch, a tit for tat. Not so much since 2018. And I tell you what, uh, if you look at the roadmap and the playbook that's been created over the course of the last 20 years by individuals like the spouse of the current governor, uh, their roadmap is to turn around and stop not just what we do here in this state, but to take it all, yes. and it doesn't matter how, when, why, what, where, and 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 how they get it either. Well, and I think like I'm so, I'm glad you said that because I, that's what I worry about more than anything. And no matter where you're sitting and listening to this stuff, I mean it's a it's a effort across the board where it's not going to stop in Colorado. It's not going to just stop in Arizona. There was some stuff recently there. Oregon, Washington have been going through their things. Like, it's going to come everywhere, and I, I just – it scares me to death. Like, I, and I'm really glad to see an organization really kind of taking that fight because I think one thing that's hard for me to understand is I look at these different organizations, the 501c3s, and it's kind of interesting – I just don't see a whole lot of fighting this type of stuff. Like they're not really, I don't know, there's not a whole lot of voicing about it. And maybe there's more behind the scenes than I see, but I'm just like, man, somebody's got to bring the fight and kind of unify people in a way. Um, like Defenders of Wildlife, man, so that's a 501c3 as I understand it. I mean, 2.2 yeah. .2 million members and a $38 million budget. Like, and these guys yeah. show up. I mean, they're, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, and I look and see the rallying they get. And I mean, they had, I'm pretty sure they had their attorney there. Um, what was that? Middle of December when uh, the Cattlemen's Association brought that lawsuit. And I mean, they have an attorney there and it's just hard for me to see not a whole lot of like unified <laughs> national groups representing sportsmen taking this. And it, so it's just really relieving to see you guys like take this fight to them. And man, I've talked to a bunch of associates in Colorado. I've kind of been watching this uh, as a non-resident looking in and I just, I don't see anybody doing quite what you guys are doing. And it's just so relieving for me to see it. And I, I even have a close friend at the CPW that I've be he's become a good friend of mine. I met him a few years ago hunting, 
and we talk on a regular basis, and he told me from his perspective, you were the only guy in organization really bringing the fight. Like, I was asking him, like, who is, like, who should we get behind to try to support this? And it's just, it's awesome that you guys are doing what you do, and I hope people will take this, listen, learn, and get involved with you guys and, like, what you're doing. It's good stuff, man. Well, and, and I appreciate that, Travis, and, and it and it hasn't been uh, an easy road to tow just because mm-hmm. of the changing demographics in Colorado and how things have, you know, the, the population has not only become more diversified, it's it's more diversified in sense of they come from all over the country with a variety of different opinions on how to do this or how to do that mm-hmm. and how to live here and how to live there, and that's the unique thing about people as a whole that we all have opinions, you know, you know, that old adage, you know, opinions are like, well, you know what they're like for sure. And, and everybody, and everybody's got them, but educated opinions are what we hope to be able to strive for in the long term, because people need to be educated about science-based wildlife management. They need to be educated about habitat and conservation about where your water comes from. Air quality is one of those things. You know, you could get into a climate change discussion or maybe not, depending on what side of the aisle somebody sits on. But there's a lot of things that go into wildlife management. And hunting and angling has been a keystone component of that for the course of the last 125 years. And what what I saw from from my personal perspective is, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong sportsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm 60 years old. Uh, I've been involved for the last 20 years hard, the last 10 years, like nobody's business. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a trapper Mm -hmm. and trapping was taken away in Colorado for recreational purposes outside of cage traps in 1996 through a constitutional amendment, amendment 14, that wild earth guardians and HSUS supported at that particular time. Four years prior to that, there was a bear initiative, initiative, uh, 10 in 1992 that took spring bear hunting away, the use of hounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so things started to change, you know, 30, 35 years ago, but a lot of it was because the deceit, the deceitful components of what our adversaries were bringing to the table. Yes. Now, like most game agencies in most States, they are, they work at the pleasure of the governor. Mm-hmm. And 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 if you have a, a good governor and a fairly conservatively minded, you know, conservation minded state, a lot of times they'll let those game agencies speak their piece, uh, you know, say what's necessary to educate the public. That hasn't been the case for quite some time in the state of Colorado because of the governor's administrations and going all the way back to the Romer days back in the 1990s when we lost bear hunting and trapping. If the governor tells the agency not to speak, and at that point in time, it was the Division of Wildlife, and now it's Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Mm -hmm. then that agency is not going to speak. They work at the pleasure of the governor. They are state employees under the Department of Natural Resources, and and the executive director of that department works and is appointed directly by the governor. And the director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, or previously the director of the Division of Wildlife is appointed by that director of the Department of Natural Resources. It's a trickle-down deal. You work you work at the pleasure of the people that hired you, and you're there for a specific reason. Yes. Uh, but the demographics changed dramatically, and uh, 
we didn't get as much support as what we thought we should have gotten from the sportsmen and women community side of things from the agency because the agency was told to shut the hell up. Well, fast forward to 2020 when Proposition 114 came out on the wolf issue and Colorado Parks and Wildlife, uh, for the most part, didn't agree that wolves should be introduced by ballot initiative. They didn't have a problem with wolves being, you know, crossing the border on their own and establishing their own population, but they didn't really agree, but they couldn't say that. Yes. And there was no feedback or backlash because the governor's push was to turn around and try to get this through with a lot of supporters uh, to make that happen on, on Proposition 114, which passed in November of 20 and most recently went through three years of stakeholder groups and some litigation and so forth, back and forth. I sat on that stakeholder advisory group and was appointed to sit on that for the introduction and the management plan. But here just last week, we introduced 10 wolves on the ground, came from Oregon. And um, that's that's part of the entire process of building up all the way since 1992 of losing the bears, losing the trapping. We held the line for quite a few years. Things started to change. The governor gets elected in 2018. He's got a strong left-wing animal rights activist, extremist husband. And you start seeing things change so dramatically that it's, it's almost undeniably an agenda-driven tactic that they're going to capitalize on what they can capitalize on while they're here. And other states are seeing how to accomplish that and using those tactics. And while this governor is termed out in um, 2026, uh, we have to figure out a way to survive until then to do responsible wildlife science-based management and keep that on the books and on the forefront, or we're, we're, we're bound to lose what we've got. And then it's only going to turn around and get worse here and go to other States as well. For sure. Well, Dan, I like ass kickers and I think it sounds to me like you know how to do it. And I really like, this is great. I I'm excited to have you on and I can tell, and all the listeners will be able to tell you are super involved, super knowledgeable on this stuff. And it's going to be, I think this is going to be a great episode. Um, can we kind of just talk, Dan? So basically, in my opinion, and so we have two um, ballot initiatives that are going to come up in the next, so the next election cycle. There's some work that's got to be done. And then we've also got this wolf deal going on. I think in it where it started with a ballot initiative, and I think, would, would, are you good? Maybe we dump, jump into the wolves in Colorado and kind of, I think some of the damage has been done here. There's no putting wolves back in the bag. <laughs> um, it's just kind of the way it is, but can you kind of just break out a ballot initiative and that signature gathering process and how this all kind of got rolling? And then maybe we talk about the results of that election and how close it was some of that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, I mean, Colorado's one of, I think, 26 states that has ballot initiative processes. I don't know the specifics in most of those other states about, you know, exactly the steps and the and the the uh, measures that need to be taken to get things on the ballot in those states. But they do have ballot me- measure processes. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Colorado, you or I or anybody else could turn around and go to the Secretary of State's office and file an initiative title and come up with language that we wanted to impose. Whether and I've said this before on other podcasts. If you want to stop the sale of Coors beer, uh, if you want to make sure that people don't walk their 
their pit bull out after dark. Uh, if you want to turn around and, and make sure a certain segment of the population cannot do something, it sounds ludicrous, but in theory, you can you can do whatever you can get past the title board if you can get signatures on it to then get it on the ballot. And so what one does is they go down and file their title and they follow their, the language of their initiative. It goes through a legislative council review. Once it goes through that with suggestions from that legislative council, then it's kicked over to the title board, which all they're concerned is the title. They don't do anything with the measure language itself. Nothing on the initiative language, just the title. The title has to be a single subject title. It can't be confusing to the general public. And it has to have some restraints and guidelines to where it would be easily decipherable for the voter once the time comes for the voter to be able to, to vote on it during the upcoming election. During that process, uh, we decided to engage at this level on Initiative 91 the process that happened back in 2020 on Proposition 114, the wolf issue, there was nobody, nobody at that time fully prepared to engage in the process that we are doing now. Now, given the people that were working on the wolf deal then, credit enough to say they formulated organizations to try to thwart and stop Proposition 114. Gotcha. Stepping forward to this past September, in September, September 22nd of 23, we had already been formed since 2016 and 17. We were already doing a significant amount of the Yeoman's work at the Capitol and within the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission. And so we were doing our education campaigns. We were doing our lobbying efforts. We'd been in contact with strategists and attorneys. We knew that we beat these guys back in 19, 20, 21, and at the legislature in 22 on similar measures, measures such as citizens' petitions at the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission and at the Colorado Legislature with Senate Bill 31 in February of 2022. We beat them back on everything that they tried to throw at us. And that was like and a cat trope. So I think the 22 one, was that the cat? How was that worded? It was like the cat trophy hunting it a, it or something. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was essentially the same thing what this is yes. on, the, on the ballot. Uh, and, and so we, we had about 17 days to prepare for that. But keep in mind that we'd already been formulated for five years prior to that. Mm -hmm. So we had, we had some you know, street cred and some boots on the ground and some resources and, and some connections and the network that we had had. Uh, the Wolf guys back in 2020 didn't have any of that. They got the Wolf deal dumped on them, and then they ran around going, what the hell are we going to do? How are we going to get money? How are we going how, how to defeat and defend this? Yep. And by the time that they went through those processes to get their – feet underneath of their asses, so to speak, the legislative process through the title board was already done and over with. So yeah, and, wording, and so they, nothing could be changed. It was kind of, yeah. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So they, so they were left with what they were, what they were given as opposed to being able to fight in the fight to what they wanted to try to impose to correct. Now you, they, they weren't going to be able to stop the proposal at that point in time. Um, although they could have tried, but they could have delayed, they could have prolonged, and they could have actually engaged in the process to try to get something that would be more favorable to mm -hmm. our community at the time, just like what we're trying to do on Initiative 91 and 101. Yep. Now, I will I will correct you, uh, and it's, it's more of an information segment. Initiative 91 and Initiative 101 are both to prohibit trophy hunting. And what the, what the proponents of those measures are doing is they're, they're title shopping. 
Yes. They've got the language and they've changed the language in multiple levels. I mean, it's like a smoke and mirror show game, but the title that they're really trying to get to their liking is something that they can throw on the wall as many times as they want up until March 22nd of 2024 and, and still use the same language or different language, depending on how the title board reflected on some of the other previous rehearings or arguments and if they were actually heard at the Supreme Court level, which we are doing on Initiative 91. But going through that entire process, and I keep jumping back and forth from 2020 to now, but but our, our advocates on our side didn't do any of those measures to go through the Legislative Council, the title board, the rehearing of the Supreme Court at that time. We learned from their inability to do so, and that's why we engaged wholeheartedly uh, to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars right off the bat with Initiative 91. Mm -hmm. Through Initiative 91, we were able to get trophy hunting out of the language through the title board and then challenge some other components of the measure through the Supreme Court. Because we were so successful to take trophy hunting out, because then it just became a hunting issue, not a trophy hunting issue, even though the definition in the measure of trophy hunting was to kill, pursue, wound, and entrap a mountain lion or bobcat, which we interpreted as strictly hunting. We, we went through that whole process to get to the Supreme Court, and at the same time, now they've dumped another initiative on us with the same language but different title language that they're actually trying to see what would stick on the wall. And that one there is also a pro prohibit trophy hunting of mountain lions, bobcats, and lynx, which if anybody lives in the United States knows that, that lynx <laughs> are federally protected in the lower 48, so we can't harvest them anyway. Yeah. Uh, this is So, and like, just to bring this so everybody understands, so, because I think the wolf deal... It's kind of at everybody's forefront. It was all over the news. I mean, I, I, I live in Idaho, and I saw it on the news here, you know, talking about the wolves. So I think there's a bunch of people. So that started in 2020. That was 114. That was a ballot, in, or, yep. Yep, a ballot initiative. And then yep. fast forward to today. So what's going on right now is we have another one called – It's so 91 and 101, which is prohibit trophy yep. hunting. It's just – it's crazy how – these things like you almost get, you got to be engaged in this stuff. That's why I say get involved, but it's, it's wild to see this change. Like we were talking about in the last few years and how these ballot initiatives get rolling and they get a certain amount of signatures. And once they accomplish that, and that has to be Colorado signatures, like, or Colorado citizens yeah. that sign up voting registered voters. Yeah. Registered voters. Yes, sir. And so they yeah, get, and it's how many signatures do they have to get to get something? Well, on the... they, they go off a certain percentage of the last oh. general election. And, and this, this time it's 124,238, I think, that they have to get after they get the title affirmed. It was pretty close to that during okay. 2020 on the wolf issue. So uh, they get that now, many signatures that goes through some sort of a check and balance process. And then it gets on the... For where every there's general voters at the November elections can vote on this. Is that that's how it works? Yeah, the 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 process would be is if they get a title affirmed over the course of the next several months, either ninety one or one hundred one or any other title that mm -hmm. they threw at the wall that we would have to in turn uh, appeal or fight. 
then then once they get the title of firm, then they can start gathering signatures. They go out and gather the signatures. And I do want to mention that because this is an initiative, it's not a constitutional amendment. The constitutional amendment, the signature gathers or the proponents are required to get 2% of their total signatures out of each one of the 35 Senate districts. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. That's on the constitutional side. On the initiative side, in theory, they could all stand out in front of one Whole Foods and get, get in the 124,000. And get the signatures yeah. and yeah. the rest they, of the state they, gets no, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's what they did. That's what they did during Proposition 114. Now, you go back 30 some odd years on Amendment 14, which was the trapping amendment to the constitutional amendment, they had to get 2%, which they didn't have to get 124,000 in because yeah. we didn't have that people in Colorado. At that point in time, we had 2.9 million people. Now we have 5.9 million people. So they had to get less signatures in, even though there was less people in the state. But that's a constitutional amendment. Everything else that we've talked about, from the Bear Initiative to the Wolf Initiative to these two things here, are not constitutional. So they don't have to get signatures from all across the state. Gotcha. And so, yeah, and that's a great point because I think what's crazy is like the Wolf deal, 114. So th they get the signatures, goes to the general election. And if I'm right, Dan, maybe I'm wrong, but wasn't it like a 51% or something like, and it was only a few counties in favor the rest of the state was opposed, but it was like a 51 to 49% breakdown. Like that's how close the vote was. Is it, was that right? Yeah. I think it was like, I think it was like 50.9 uh, to 49.1. Uh, and, and it was total in somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50,000 votes, 49,000, 50,000 votes, which, which you really look at, you know, the front range is what, what carried the weight on that just mm -hmm. because of the population demographics and the, and the density. And, and so, but what I would say is that we really honestly believe that if the anti-wolf coalition, mm -hmm. and I say that tongue in cheek because there's a lot of conservationists like myself that look, you know, there might be some haters on here, but I'm not anti-wolf. What, what I am is anti-wildlife management. I, I don't think that we should pedestalize anything to sacrifice something else. Yes. And, and so I'm a conservationist. I mean, look, the mission of our organization is to enhance, promote, and defend the North American model of wildlife conservation and responsible wildlife management. If wolf came, wolves came in there on their own, then, then let them be. But if they become a problem or they become detrimental to ungulate populations or to private property and landowners and cattle producers and recreationists, then there needs to be uh, some balance. There needs to be some step in the process. For sure. What I don't agree with, and Colorado was the first to introduce wolves by a ballot initiative by the vote of the people. Yes. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't agree that everybody's opinion matters on issues that they have no knowledge about. It'd be cool to hear a wolf. It'd be cool to see a wolf. But when you never get out of Denver or you don't turn around and leave the front range in the urban corridor along I-25, why should you be able to impose something on Colorado's wildlife population and the agricultural community that you're going to have no personal stake in? Yes. I don't believe in ballot box biology. And, that, and, if, and if it's going to be ballot box biology, then we ought to leave it up to the experts to decide the when, where, why, how, and who 
and to make sure that we are cognizant of 961 species of wildlife in this state for 5.9 million people with 84 million annual visitors and make sure that we incorporate the expertise, the science-based management into those decision-making processes and not leave it up to a florist or a, a Uber driver mm-hmm. or a UPS delivery guy or the Maytag repairman in the Denver city limits. Yes. I think that's piss poor wildlife management. Yes. No. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that's the, and I think that's, what's the most troubling thing to me. Like I, I go back to the, um, the greater Yellowstone introduction. You had States adamantly opposed to the U S fish and wildlife's introduction or reintroduction, I guess you could argue whatever, but into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, you had States adamantly opposed. Like there was, they were against this. You had division personnel. So you had, um, biologists speaking, bringing up issues about all this stuff, like, you know, and that kind of helped facilitate some of the, you know, like we had, I think there were supposed to only be, I, I can't remember how many packs it was. There was, there was parameters set, like we're going to allow it to do this. And even then it still just got, it spun out of control and that we could go, we don't want to spend a bunch of time on that, but What's crazy is like the Colorado deal, you literally had zero input from the biologists on the ground in Colorado. And that's what was super troubling to me. There was, in fact, I think if biologists, I think there was a few cases of biologists speaking out against this and weren't they basically fired or removed or I, I know there was a couple issues that come up with that. I, I don't know how that worked exactly, but I know it was... Not- there was there was there was a lot of turmoil. It was a tumultuous landscape for a variety of different reasons. I was intimately and integrally involved in most of those comments and processes and and the interactions and and the, but I can tell you that that there was there was a lot of opinions and there was a lot of procedures that maybe didn't take proper protocol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a lot of errors and omissions on all parts. Gotcha. And, and and not just with that, but just with the governing of wildlife management as a whole. There was a lot of what I would consider to be missteps, mm-hmm. a lack of leadership, a lack of guidance, a lack of direction. And I think that that only exacerbated and added to the confusion of trying to figure out a way to systematically and incrementally uh, take the will of the people, which was only a minimal percent, mm-hmm. but still it was the will of the people, and incorporate that into the best possible plan that you could come up with. And what because I sat on the stakeholder advisory group out of 17 or 18 people, because I was one of the individuals that was asked to participate in that, I don't think that that was fully accountable and transparent. I don't think that it was fully in the best interest of the agency that's going to be tasked with managing wolves Mm -hmm. and the other 960 species of wildlife and i think it was more agenda driven by political interest that started in 2018 that have now gotten to a point where it's created even more confusion on the landscape about a variety of other wildlife subjects in the state yeah and that's and i think that's what's scary is just to see that from 2020 i mean and fast forward here we are a few years almost we're coming up on 2000 24 i guess and this it's just it's a wild time in colorado it really is and i just hope people 
I just hope people get involved. Um, can you, so pause, so there was a pause on the ground by December 30th. They ended up meeting that Utah, or let's see, it was the Colorado, not Utah, Colorado Cattlemen's Association and the Gunnison Stock Growers filed a lawsuit basically against the environmental impact study. That was, I, th I think that's what the, was the base of their lawsuit. Um, basically saying it wasn't that in depth. It didn't go into enough stuff. And that lawsuit's still kind of up in the air. I don't think it's been decided. Is that correct? You know, on that. Yeah, there's, there's actually two, there's actually two lawsuits, one by the Cattlemen's Association and the Gunnison Stock Growers. That was the first one that was filed. They were trying to get a stay or an injunction mm -hmm. to stop the introduction, the, the actual pause on the ground. Um, and, and the judge opted not to allow that stay uh, almost simultaneously or shortly thereafter, the Colorado Conservation Alliance um, also filed a lawsuit similar to the first one, but with a little bit more standing. And the reason that there's more standing is because there's been a lot of, well, let me back up. There's been a lot of criticism from some of the people on the ground that why didn't they do this earlier? Mm -hmm. Well, the 10 day designation, the permit, yeah, didn't from the US actually Fish and take Wildlife. Yep. Yeah, it didn't take effect until December eighth. Okay. Their plan was to turn around and try to wait to where they had standing, and make sure that they were crossing their T's and dotting their I's because they couldn't go in the lawsuit way, the litigious way, unless the 10J was in place. And so the 10J became in place on December eighth. I think the lawsuits were filed the week after that. The wolves were on the ground somewhere around the 17th or 18th um, and maybe even through the latter part of last week. And then lo and behold, the other lawsuit had been filed uh, with no opportunity for an injunction or a stay. But both of those are still in the process of the courts. And if you ask Parks and Wildlife at this point in time, they won't comment on either one, obviously, mm -hmm. because they're in litigation. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of confusion on on both of those things, and um, I think I think part of the confusion arises from the state legislature getting involved in some of these issues during the last legislative session that ended in May. Mm -hmm. uh, the governor then vetoing a 10J bill, which was Senate Bill 256. Uh, the cattlemen were were very pissed off. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the legislators were the, to the dismay of legislators because the governor then vetoed what those legislators were really trying to do to fix some of the things for the agriculture community. But we knew in the back of our minds, there was more than a likelihood that there was going to be a 10 J imposed. It's just that it didn't come from state mandate. It came from federal intervention. And, and so during that whole process of the EIS, the environmental impact study, um, and all the, the uh, final conversations about the wolf management plan and how things were going to be implemented, both of those two entities, or the three entities in two different lawsuits, opted to wait until uh, after December 8th when the 10J then, uh, then took effect. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy because, like, looking back in, I think it was January or February, sometime earlier this year, I was actually, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife had mentioned in one of the meetings or somewhere along the lines that it was going to take, 
until like it was at least like December or next, whatever. It was going to take quite a long time to finish that EIS. And then the EIS got done, if I understand, it was like, a, what, a few months ago? I think they kind of yeah. got it done fast and then they ended up in the 10 J designation is basically for anybody. If you're saying, wondering what the, what the hell is a 10 J the 10 J is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that is a U.S. fish and wildlife designation basically to allow Colorado as a state to manage an endangered species. Yeah. And, and, but the 10 J is, is in the sense where you talk about manage, it was more for, the ability of protection of private property and livestock uh, to make sure that there could be lethal control imposed mm-hmm. because when we were actually setting up the management plan ourselves amongst the stakeholder advisory group, lethal control was essentially taking off, taken off of the plate, yep. uh, taken out of the bill of goods that we could try to turn around and, and formulate. And so it was imperative to have that 10 J in place to make sure that the producers themselves could protect their own stuff. However, there's a caveat to that, that the way it's written, I mean, if you see a wolf, at least this is the interpretation anyway, if you see a wolf running around your cattle, good for you. Uh, you can document that and you can report it. Mm-hmm. If you see a wolf stalk, stalking one of your cows or your sheep, good for you. Uh, if you see a wolf harassing, good for you. Until that wolf has something in his mouth and and an attack is not only imminent, but in the process, you have no legal authority to be able to turn around and create damage or harm to that wolf. You can harass it. Yeah. And so, so there's, I just feel sorry for the first son of a gun that goes out there and, and actually does something Mm -hmm. without a dead, dead cow or dead sheep on the ground. That's got, significant evidence of of wolf bites or or wolf activity yes Uh, and because because whoever on the other side the proponents of wolf introduction are going to try to make an example out of a individual uh and and likely likely that you'll see major backlash from the community in some capacity just because they they you know look people want to be able to protect their own stuff Yes. And there's a one gentleman up in North Park, Colorado, uh, Mr. Gittleson, that has had more damage to his property and his dogs and his livestock than any producer in the state. Mm-hmm. And that's only with three or four wolves on the ground that actually came in naturally. Yes. The CPW then turned around and, and caught and collared, and some of which went back to Wyoming and didn't come back here. But Mr. Gittleson <laughs> was the test king. And if you ask Mr. Gittleson, he might have some pros and cons of the entire process, but I'll tell you, he's not completely happy. And if that sort of, if that sort of interaction uh, expands into a larger part of the agriculture, agriculture community, you're only going to see more and more disruption and distraction and divisiveness. People talk about that rural, rural urban divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you've seen anything until you start to get 30 or 40, 50 wolves on the ground that possibly are creating conflict. If you get 30 or 40 or 50 wolves on the ground and there is no conflict, nobody's going to worry about it. People are still going to gripe and bitch that it's going to happen. But until it happens, uh, it's all speculative. For sure. Yeah, and, it, and it's really interesting. I, I look at, like, the like so on the greater Yellowstone, when that, when that introduction happened, 
there was a lot of measures put in, and this was because it was argued by the states up there. I mean, the states fought to have lethal control measures in place. I mean, there was all these things, like trapping was, you know, they, like they were trapping around cattle and or agricultural producers. They were trapping. They were doing all these things. And, like, and I sit and I think, how is this going to go in Colorado? One of the best mechanisms to control wolves is trapping. They're not going to probably go in a live trap. It's going to be very difficult. Yep. Just I just think about all these things, and then there's really no limit on how many wolves we can get. In fact, I think the language basically states that it's a viable population, or it's something very vague, basically, that I think could probably be argued till the end of time. I don't remember the exact wording, but it's just a crazy thing. And then I look at the neighboring states like Utah, for instance, so wolves entering most of the state of utah there's a small section that's in the greater yellowstone ecosystem but most of the state if a cattle guy over in utah has depredation issues which they will i mean they're not very far we're dealing with animals that travel a long distance they have no control mechanisms in place they can't do anything the state of utah i think as i understand it the only thing they can do is live trap them and take them back to colorado that will be yep. that will be paid for by Utah sportsmen if um, the Division of Natural Resources in Utah has to trap. Well, it's a crazy thing. It's just and there's no so if a guy just across the border in Utah loses ten calves, as I understand it, he gets zero money. And it's weird how some one state can do something that would affect another state and then there's really nothing done and i I, the like silence from utah has been just absolutely crazy to me on this like i it's wild to me that they haven't been more involved because i mean they're pretty yeah yeah. and and travis you mentioned you mentioned that it's weird that one state can do something that might harm a, a neighboring state but think about how weird it is for the state itself to do harm to it the residents Mm -hmm. of the state it's crazy And, and, and and allow allow people on the front range mm-hmm. to do things that are detrimental to other residents in part in the and in, in most of the rural parts of Colorado. We've got 64 counties in the state of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Roughly 5 million of the 5.9 million people that live in Colorado live within 25 miles of Interstate 25 between Castle Rock and Boulder mm-hmm. uh, up through the Larimer County, Fort Collins and down into Colorado Springs. The rest of them live all over across the rest of the state of Colorado. I mean, that for people to be able to turn around and vote on something that is going to affect somebody else mm-hmm. 250 to 300 miles away in state goes hand in hand with what you're talking yep. about about state damage. But look at the look at New Mexico for instance. New Mexico and Arizona both have the Mexican wolf, mm-hmm. one of the most highly endangered canines yes on the planet outside maybe the red wolf uh there's been very little provisions taken and a lot of criticism yes if if some of these wolves moved down there or some of their wolves in turn moved up here could there be a genetic crossover that would that would threaten that population almost to extinction if not complete extinction now it's not going to happen overnight but if we're really talking about conservation efforts, why wouldn't we have utilized science to say Colorado is the middle ground 
we're going to have some wolves maybe come in from the north, and we're going to have some Mexican wolves maybe come in from the south. But let's try to keep Colorado as the buffer through the natural cycle of attrition. Mm -hmm. No, the voters decided we're just going to put wolves smack dab in the middle of Colorado and wherever the hell they go. And it doesn't really matter if it affects the southern Mexican, the Mexican wolf on the south side or if it turns around and goes back into Wyoming on the north side. I find that is the lack of science-based management because nobody turned around and listened to the experts. Yes. Nobody learned Nobody learned from past experiences that when voters make decisions like this, more often than not, they're, they're ill intent and they're, they're not well managed. And I think that we'll find out probably after my dumb ass is dead and gone, <laughs> how this stuff turns out. But, you know, I mentioned the 84 million people, mm -hmm. you know, Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho combined have less of a resident population of people than Colorado yes. does. Yep. Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho combined had 33 million visitors for those three states that are three times the size of Colorado, and we had 84 million visitors. Mm -hmm. If I was a wolf, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but if I was a wolf and you took me out of some place that I was just learning to figure out how to adapt and, and, and you know maneuver around the nuances of that place, and you took me and put me somewhere else, if, if, if everybody wants to talk on behalf of animals, why don't they talk on behalf of animals when they take them out of some place and put them somewhere else? Yes. And I'm all for introduction. I'm all for species conservation. But it's funny that the argument that I heard during the stakeholder advisory group that you can't do lethal control because you will screw the pack up. Mm -hmm. They'll just go into a total rampage in oblivion and nobody will know what to do because you take the alpha male and the alpha female out and nobody knows where to go and what to do. What the hell is the difference between us taking wolves out of Oregon and bringing them here? What the hell did those wolves do in Oregon? That, did they not? <laughs> Dude, that, that's know? the funniest. Honestly, I thought about that because that's been the pro-wolf, like the, the whole fight in, you know, hunting in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana has been, yeah, you take, you're going to mess with the herd, with, with herd dynamic or <laughs> pack dynamics, excuse me. And by taking an animal out, and that it's just funny that on one hand say this, on the other hand, oh, well, it doesn't matter, you know, the, if we take them and we're, it's crazy, it's wild to me, it's just insane. I think the hypocrisy that I see from my own personal perspective is, look, I'm a, I, I own and operate and have for 37 years a wildlife conflict control business. Uh -huh. And we do commercial stuff and we do residential and we do agriculture and we do department of defense and, and public infrastructure and utility easements. And, and we do, a, we do a variety of things and that's not all lethal. Yeah. A lot of it is habitat restoration. A lot of it is habitat modification. A lot of it is education to the general public, but I deal with things on a, on a basis that people all the time want me to take something away and put it somewhere else. And I'm like, where the hell am I supposed to put it? <laughs> You want me to turn around and take a coyote and a red fox out of your subdivision and put it on the open prairie where there's already coyotes and foxes. And they're, so they're, all they're interested in is territory mm -hmm. and food yes, and meat. That's it. Yep. And so I take a stranger, put it down in there. There's a, there's a fight that goes on to some degree. Now, either those ones are, are survivors and they figure out a way to stay hold or they leave or they get killed. That's the three options. But see, people don't see that stuff unless they watch 
National Geographic and they actually showed the whole damn thing that happens. <laughs> when I first started my control business 37 years ago, I saw a guy at about 6.30 in the morning in Colorado Springs, and he took a, a cage trap, a have a heart cage trap, mm -hmm. and he had a, a partly blue-painted squirrel in that cage trap. And I know what he did. He, he caught it at his house. He painted it blue. He probably lives, you know, within a mile of there. He wanted to see if these freaking squirrels were coming back to his house. <laughs> we watched the squirrel leave, and the squirrel ran around in the park for probably five or ten minutes. And he started sitting up, and he was chirping, and a bunch of other squirrels were chirping. And pretty soon, there was about ten or twelve different squirrels in great big giant cottonwood trees and oak trees, all chirping at the squirrel. They got that squirrel in about 45 minutes, and I was intent on watching because I had done similar type stuff where I would capture and relocate. Uh -huh. And I watched about 10 different squirrels come down there and rip the flipping guts out of that blue-colored squirrel and kill him on the spot. And from then on, I have never, ever turned around and taken something somewhere just to see if it could survive because I think that that's piss-poor wildlife management. Now, if there was no squirrels in an area, maybe that's a spot. If there's no bobcats, Maybe there's a spot. If there's no coyotes or foxes or beavers, maybe there's a spot. There's no wolves here, maybe not, but that doesn't mean that the wolf is going to turn around and like it, and he's going to be able to turn around and adapt to it because this is not the greater Yellowstone area. Yes. This is Colorado with 5.9 million people with cattle production and recreation and all sorts of land use restrictions and mining and Yellowstone National Park is just that. It's a national park. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the comparison from one to the other justifies anybody's particular opinion except for their tainted opinion and their agenda because it's damn sure not science-based because when I sat on that stakeholder group and I listened to all the so-called experts from the proponent side of the measure, they always talked about Yellowstone. And I, and I always thought about that blue squirrel going back 37 sure. years and you know mother nature is not anything other than cruel yep and we are we are a part of mother nature and i think that science and harvest and management and uh, a, a little bit of tolerance goes a long way but if you look at the animal rights agenda, it's one way or the highway. And I don't think that they consider any of those other options. No. And it really is amazing how united they are in that front. You know what I mean? It really is. It's mind blowing to me. It's sickening. Yep. It's, it's not a good thing for sure. Well, and on the wolf deal, I, it's crazy. You know, I just, I want like, I was thinking about this. I think it between 95 and 96, I think there were 66 released in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. They were, there's a little breakdown, Idaho, Yellowstone in 2008, there were six, I think it was almost 1700 wolves. It was just under 1700 wolves. And so from 95, 95, 96 to 2008, you had like a 25% increase every year. I think there was roughly 217 packs and still out of control to today they're still and i mean and it's like open season most of the states idaho you know are allowing thermal hunting them at night and still can't get a population under control it's just a it's going to be very interesting to see how this breaks well, out and travis travis to that point colorado got rid of trapping um in 1996 we don't have those tools in the toolbox we don't have the things that those other states have. Mm -hmm. We have more elk 
combined than those three states. Yep. We have a lot more deer than most of those states. Yep. We have a lot more people. We have we have a lot more agriculture. I mean, I'm talking about individual entities. I did a I did a comparison when I was testifying in front of the Parks and Wildlife Commission, and it was something like Colorado had 33,000 individual agriculture properties, and and Montana by itself had something like 2,900. Mm-hmm. But they're bigger. Yeah. There's a lot more. It's a lot more landmass. But 33,000 to 2,900. My comparison is you got you got 10 times more opportunity to have conflict and complaints mm-hmm. than you do you have 2,900 ag producers. And I think, I think that if we look down the road where we're going to be five years and 10 years and 15 years, I think that we're going to figure out that that was a mistake not to do it from a science-based management perspective. And I think it was a mistake not to allow tools that could be incorporated into a legitimate conflict resolution component. Uh, and, and the tools that I'm talking about are tools in the toolbox that other states have that we don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, because ours is a constitutional amendment, we're not likely to get those back unless there's a complete revolt and a revolution uh, in the sense to where you go through the courts and you go through the initiative process and you try to change the state constitution. What will change that, in my mind, is more conflict. And I think that's going to be get the only way. Receptive. Yep. Yep. I mean, you, you get two wolves to jerk somebody off of a snowmobile or skiing down the, the Vail ski slope or, or to get inside of a, a tent and kill a dog and a, and a kid or something. I'm not wishing harm on anybody. But the more conflict that you have, and I say this from a wildlife control operator perspective, people are really, really tolerant until the squirrel starts eating the wires in their house that's going to burn their house down, until the skunk is digging into their cellar, until the bobcat turns around and jumps and kills and, and kills Fluffy. Yep. They thought it was cool to have the bobcat stalk the birds that they were feeding, creating a, a country buffet. But when it got their cat or their dog, well, now all their tolerance just disappears. And I think Colorado's tolerance will start to wane significantly if you start to have more and more conflict. And that's whether it's bears, lions, or wolves. It's just that we're slow to learn sometimes, and maybe I won't live to live long enough to see it. But I, I anticipate that we will have a reversal on things at some point in time just because – the critters will become more prolific. They'll become more adaptive. They'll become more tolerant themselves. And people's tolerance will will wane on the other side of it. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think you're. I think you are going to see it. And I think it's not going to take as long as some people are thinking. You know, it's just crazy. I mean, the '90s seemed like a while ago. But on one hand, but on the other, oh, I can remember. Like you know, it was wasn't that long ago. It's pretty crazy. It's it's just yeah. it's very, very, very interesting. This whole can of worms that's kind of coming out. And I hope that kind of gives people a little bit of that was great. I th- I think that's going to give people a little bit of understanding. On this wolf deal, um, it is what it is. I guess we'll see this lawsuit, how it plays out, and but I'm sure it's probably going to be a mess for a while. So, um, I think it's, it's going to be something that other states can learn off of, mm-hmm. but I think that it's all, also got the potential to help set the tone and narrative not only for Colorado's future wildlife management decisions, but other states to maybe thwart some of these efforts to where they, they don't take – they look, everybody should have – an opportunity to engage, but they ought to do it from an educational standpoint, not just because they want to hear something howl on the landscape and they're never going to actually do it if it's, if it's you know, 300 miles from them and they never get out of town. Yes, for sure. But the 
Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Um, so maybe we jump into these ballot initiatives. So that 114, wolves coming on the ground, I, I, I really don't think as far as anything right now that, I mean, the average citizen that's listening to this, I don't think they can do a whole lot. But the 91 and 101, um, can you, do, let's just jump into both of them and maybe you kind of give a brief explanation on the language of these initiatives and kind of where we are. Yeah. So on, on initiative 91, uh, because that was the first one, mm -hmm. the, the proponents intent was to capitalize on, on catchphrases Yes. like trophy hunting, yep. because they know that trophy hunting uh, is hard to define. And, and it's, well, it's not written in statute to the best of my knowledge. It's not written in any game law statute in the country. Um, there are, there are wanton waste laws. There are poaching laws, but as far as trophy hunting, some of that is in the eye of the beholder. So it's mm -hmm. easy to confuse the voter on well, yeah, I, I don't want trophy hunting because a lot of people have been told over the years trophy hunting is you go up and you cut the head off of something and, and you and you walk away from it, which is a felony in Colorado. Yeah, it's poaching. Uh, yes, poaching. Yeah, that, that's not hunting at all. It's not it's not even hunting, it's not trophy hunting, it's poaching. Yep. And so so when they came when they came at us with those with that language, the first thing that we opted to try to do was to make sure that we could try to take trophy out of that because it provided a level of confusion and there wasn't a definition of trophy, even though it might be common language or it might be somebody's reference, you know, somebody might have a trophy home, a trophy room, a trophy wife, you know, get a yeah. trophy dog. I got a trophy at the softball tournament, whatever. I mean, there's this, there's this ideology in people's minds of what a trophy is, but they couldn't define it as what it was unless they were misleading and, and, and deceiving the general public. So when we went to the, to the rehearing, we actually convinced the title board that trophy should not be allowed to be in the title. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, Travis, you, we couldn't do anything when it came to the, 
the language, the measure language, the initiative language. So trophy hunting still remained in there. But but the the, the confusing part about that is if you have a title, and for anybody that's familiar with this on, on their ballot system that they've got, if you have a title, the title is typically what's on the ballot, and then the language is what is in the blue book that is sent yeah, out yep. from, the, from the Secretary of State's office. Okay, so if you have, you know, a four-page measure with a five-line title, uh, it's hard to get everything that you want in that measure into that title mm -hmm. just because it's so broad and it's expansive. And, and and with these guys, they're doing things that's so flipping confusing that even we can't decipher what they're trying to do except for deceive and just misdirect and create a smoke and mirrors campaign. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if we, if we did, weren't successful on the title board, they probably likely would have went with the same title on initiative 91, but because we were successful and we opted to go through the entire process to leave no stone unturned. Now this costs money for both sides, but to leave no stone unturned, we appealed to the Supreme court because we felt that there was still a component or a lack of clarity on the single subject matter. You can only have one subject per ballot initiative. And we thought that Bobcats, Mountain Lions, and Lynx created a confusion component because it lacked single subject. Because Mountain Lions are managed as big game, Bobcats are managed as fur bearers, small game, and Lynx are threatened and endangered. Three different classifications under state law and a crossover of federal law. Three different management guidelines and objectives. Three different season structures, three different, you, know, you name it, we were we wanted to go through the Supreme Court process, which we have. Yep. Now, we, we haven't made it there yet. The Supreme Court will probably likely rule sometime in mid-January to early February because they're backed up. As you well heard, they're doing things on Donald Trump right now and about 15 <laughs> other things, uh, which is another measure and probably another another conversation that somebody should have down the road. But but so, so as, as we, as we, we're leaving no stone unturned to go through the Supreme Court. The proponents of Initiative 91 decided not to punt and wait to see what the Supreme Court said, but they decided to throw a Hail Mary and throw another initiative out there, another initiative called Prohibit Trophy Hunting with a bunch of different language that we argued against or for. They capitalized on some of our previous arguments. And uh, now... They've gotten, they've gone through their first hearing. We've got to file our documents by tomorrow at five o'clock. And then we have a rehearing, just like what we had during the first initiative. We have a rehearing on January 3rd for initiative 101, while initiative 91 is still going through the Supreme Court process. The language in initiative 101, while the intent is still there, they confuse the title board and the voter and even us to some degree about what they're actually trying to accomplish because now they say it's not a total hunting ban because they're allowing for, if the Parks and Wildlife Commission deems it necessary, they're allowing for a two week season of mountain lions and bobcats from December 18th till December 30th or 31st of each year, but you can't use hounds and you can't use cage traps and you can't use tracking devices and you can't use I mean, you know, I don't know what you're supposed to use besides jump out of a this tree and use an animal. So, so that way they can say, no, 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 this is not a hunting ban. Mm -hmm. And so 
The other provisions of that is, is if you're so lucky to figure out a way to harvest a bobcat or a mountain lion during that supposed allowance for a two-week season, that's not written in stone. It's only if the Parks and Wildlife Commission says that you could, which the commission right now is not so much in our favor either because they are governor appointed. Mm -hmm. But if you did harvest a bobcat or a mountain lion, then you have to turn over all the parts and pieces except the meat to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. No claws, no skull, no hide, no teeth, no nothing. It all goes to Parks and Wildlife because now you're just hunting for meat. That makes it not a trophy. This is so insane. This is, I mean, <laughs> and, and I think to just bring everybody, so I think there's going to be listeners sitting out there that are saying, well, I don't really, I'm not going mountain lion hunting in Colorado, or I'm not going bobcat hunting in Colorado. But guy, like the important thing is <laughs> you have a landscape completely out of, overran with predators. We talked about the wolf thing. Talk about this, the control measures that's happening right now with mountain lions in Colorado. Like they're getting harvested. They have to be harvested. It's all part of wildlife management. To take this tool out of the toolbox for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, it's this is it's insane. It's basically gonna be like what California does. And what's interesting in the state of California, if you look, they're still harvesting the exact same number of mountain lions as they were back when they had seasons. It's just California wildlife officials are doing it. Sportsman dollars, taxpayer dollars are paying them to do it. Instead of having sportsmen pay into a system of Colorado Parks and Wildlife buying tags and doing it on their own, it's just this is absolutely insane to me. It's so crazy. It's so convoluted, and, and keep in mind, I mean, my, my, my involvement goes back multiple decades, and, and I've sat on many Parks and Wildlife, Division of Wildlife boards and committees. Ironically, I was appointed, appointed by this governor and his predecessor, John Hickenlooper, um, to a, a governor-appointed Senate-confirmed Habitat Stamp Committee. We were in charge of roughly you know $20 million a year of conservation dollars, and I eventually became chair of that committee. I didn't vote for either one of these guys, even though I think Hickenlooper was a much better governor mm -hmm. when it came to agriculture and, and, and natural resources and conservation efforts. Uh, there wasn't the lunacy that, that we see at this point in time. And I think, I think if people understood just how convoluted this landscape has become, I would encourage them, and I'm not just trying to sell books here, but I would encourage them to look at a specific book called The Blueprint. And it is the makeup and the playbook of what was created here in Colorado and what to do in the West West, and the rest of the United States and, and use Colorado as the stepping stone. They started it in 2000 when we had Governor Owens coming into office that was there for eight years. He was the last Republican governor that we had. But I will tell you, that's not a prophecy. It's a recollection and an incremental play-by-play -play of what has actually happened and how they accomplished it and who was involved and what their motives were and where the money came from and how they established their connectivity level on a federal side of things down to a state side of things. And, and this particular governor here helped create that mechanism and 
in uh, the instrumentation of this whole process. And if you think that any state is uh, off the table, uh, I think people would be misinformed. That's not. It's not a a uh, a Nancy Drew romance novel. It's not a McCurdy type Western novel. This is a playbook of how they accomplish what they want to do. And they are doing it here just because the population changed and just because we are so outnumbered when it comes to blue and red at the Capitol and the mind boggling disruption and divisiveness that they've created on the rural urban side of things. It's just, it's really, it's just so crazy to me. Like, I I don't know. It's hard for me to I it's wild. I, and I just, it's crazy to me too, how so many sportsmen, like I remember back. So like the bear thing, there was sportsmen like, well, I don't spring hunt bears. Why should I get involved? And you know, and it's just, that's so hard for me to sit and listen to people, you know, refuse to get involved because maybe it's something they don't actually participate in on a yearly basis, but they never think about how it affects them on the back end. It's wild. You know, you know Travis, I, I had guys back in 1991 and 92 that, that I was dealing with. And we, we did a lot of bear hunting. We were actually outfitting for bear hunts. Uh-huh. We were using hounds. We were baiting. And, and the bear harvest then was not as high as what it is now in totality. Uh, but the conflict resolutions didn't need to be employed at that point in time because there was this there was this fear factor of bears that were put in on the landscape. I mean, sure. nobody, nobody had to, you know, they're, they're, you could bait outside of the city limits or you could turn around and run a hound outside the city limits. Now, we had less people then, for sure. Mm-hmm. There was less recreation then. But the management of bears was for the benefit of bears and people. Mm-hmm. Now, so much of that attitude has changed for the benefit of people with not so much on the bears. Because what people want or what people think that they want or how people get things accomplished. And what I'll tell you is, if you look at what happened in the bear deal, I got I, I got into almost knocked down drag outs with buddies of mine or, or uh, other sportsmen on the landscape that, well, just like what you said, I don't have a dog in this fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you bird hunt. Yeah. You use a dog to turn around and flush pheasants or quail. You use a dog to retrieve your ducks. You turn around and... And, and they're like, yeah, but that's different. I'm like, it's different to you, but you are creating that divisiveness. And if, if, if bird hunters as a whole thought that way, because I don't think we should be able to turn around and kill bear cubs. Well, we couldn't kill bear cubs. It was yes. illegal. That's right. We couldn't kill a sow with cubs. It was illegal. Mm-hmm. We couldn't turn around and shoot things after dark. It was illegal. Mm-hmm. There was a season established because of the management objectives of an agency that was trying to do what's best for the wildlife and the people. And if you look at the statistics, we have probably two to three times the amount of bears now than what we had then. Many, many more conflicts now than what we had then. Some of that's because of people, but a lot of it's because we got a hell of a lot more bears. Oh, for sure. Well, no, it's insane when I come out there hunting. I it's mind I like the number of bears I see, and I usually am out there late season, November, like around like they're so rare to see out and about, like in you know, later November, and I'm seeing them like out like it's crazy. I it's just so wild to me. I it's insane. It's it's frustrating to me too, because there again, look, I, I'm not the smartest apple in the basket, but because of the business 
that we run and the interactions that we have with our customers. And as I mentioned, the different types of customers. It's not just residential. A lot of it's commercial. A lot of it's business oriented. A lot of it's Department of Defense and utility infrastructures and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's, there's this, there's this. I want things to be solved to where I don't know how it's solved, but I want it to be gone so I don't know that it was here. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's the way the majority of people think. And I've had people. So if you got a minute, I'll tell you a story that I think is just funny yeah, as sure. hell. So probably about 10 years ago, there was an animal activist lady, and I won't name the association. I won't throw her out with the bathwater. But but she was she was on a, on a state board, and her and her husband bought about a $450,000, some sort of giant motorhome. And they put about 1,000 miles on it in the fall one year, and then they parked it into their their covered space that they had mm-hmm. and they, you know, they, they had heaters in there and you know, it was, it was a climate controlled storage facility. Well, somewhere about February, they were going to turn around and leave and go down and do the South coast and go to Florida and see their daughter and so forth. And they didn't, they, they didn't want us through the whole process of us doing any control measures at their house for rodent activity. They didn't want us killing anything. You couldn't use bait. You couldn't use traps. You couldn't do anything. It was, you know, going to cause the supposed undue suffering to a rat or a mouse. Mm-hmm. And so, so we trapped, and it costs more to trap because you got to be there more frequently, mm-hmm. and you got to look at other options. And and so, in any event, I mean, we're licensed pesticide applicators, but it, you know, if people want to pay me enough, I'll turn around and do whatever the hell they want, even though I don't think that's in in their best interest, and it's it's beyond my recommendations. So February and March comes along. And her husband calls and he goes, hey, we, get, we have a rodent problem and we need you to come over and take a look at it. So about two days later, we get over there. And the motorhome that they had, this monstrosity at the time of a motorhome, you know, it had slide outs and I think it had everything but a stripper pole and a jacuzzi <laughs> in it. And, and, and it wasn't there. And I said, so, so where's your motorhome? And he says, well, that's a long story, Dan. He says, you know, we, we had it in here and uh, we went out to start it. And, uh, you know, get it all tuned up for the trip that we were going to take. And it wouldn't start. And so, so we called, you know, the, the service company and they came out and they were still under warranty, but the pack rats had moved in to that motor home. Oh, they're fun. Because, because we were trapping for mice. We mm-hmm. weren't trapping for pack rats. They moved in and they, they made a ball of yarn out of the entire wiring harness underneath of the dash, which then in the motor home incorporates every single thing that you could possibly do. And they stripped all of the wiring of the covering, which was soy based. And you couldn't tell if it was a red or a green or a blue or what went to what or anything. And so it, it cost them about almost $170,000 at that time to get this whole thing rewired. Cool. And, and once they got it back, it delayed their trip by like something like three and a half or four months. Once they got it back, he called me. She didn't. He called me and he said, we'd like to change our options for our control measures. <laughs> and I said, what would you like to do? And he said, I don't care if you burn them, stomp them, drag them, drown them, shoot them, hammer them. He says, I don't want to see another living rodent on this property as long as we are here. And I, th- and I thought right then and there, people of all breeds have a level of tolerance that th- they don't have. They will argue with you until the day you die, unless it happens to affect them. Yes. 
And I honestly believe that 95% of the people on this planet, you're going to get that 5% that they'll turn around and let, you know, mice eat them out of house and home and probably give them antivirus and, and, and whatever. But 95% of the people I deal with have a level of tolerance to where when it starts to dramatically affect them, and just like what we'll see with bobcats or mountain lions or coyotes or bears or wolves, they will start to see and they'll go, why doesn't the agency take care of this? Not why doesn't the sportsman take care of this? Why doesn't the agency take care of this? And the answer that I always give is the agency takes care of it because the sportsman no longer can. Yes. See, and that's so crazy to me. And and it's sportsman dollars. That's I, I'm not sure exactly how Colorado works, but if I understand their budget, it, it, a lot of their funding is from – deer and elk licenses uh, non-residents i think are a big big contributing factor in colorado 58 58 of all money generated for the game cash fund on wildlife management is generated by non-resident elk hunters that's, 58%. that's insane i mean and so you, then you start to think okay this 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 wolf deal just the wolf deal alone is going to cost millions of dollars i'm sure over, uh, I, I mean, honestly, it might be faster than we think. I mean, it, it could really start racking up dollars. And then if you see, maybe there's a few less tags issued on the back. I mean, it's just like this snowball effect. And then you start dealing with mountain lion issues, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, instead of having sportsmen take care of this problem, they're going to have to do it. That's less time they're going to spend doing all of the other things they need to be doing. And they should, they, that's what they do. It's just a snowball effect of a mess. It's just, it worries me to death. We've got, we've got 961 species of wildlife in the state, 78 game species. What pays for the bulk of all of the management out of the game cash fund comes from deer and elk licenses, and the majority of that comes from elk licenses. That's Wolves so. are going to come around and capitalize on the plethora of resources that we have in some capacity. But I do want to mention something, that – if you, if you ban the harvest of mountain lions, which this past year we harvested 486 mountain lions through the harvest program, that doesn't include the depredation or the roadkill, or this, this is just licensed buying sportsmen and women. We harvested 486 mountain lions. We, we typically go from 450 to around 500, maybe a little bit higher depending on what quotas are. But we have quotas set up for each game management unit that – CPW determines how many lions should be taken out and how many should be allowed to, to remain. Well, I'm just going to throw some numbers out real quick. If, if you don't take 486 mountain lions off of the landscape and then those lions propagate in the next year, if you, if you're conservative and we go with four to 5,000 mountain lions in the state of Colorado, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife says three to seven thousand, but let's just, you know, to split yeah. hairs here, four to five thousand. If you allow four to five thousand mountain lions to take a conservative level of deer and/or elk, I'm not going to take the one a week deal, even though I think it's probably closer to the one a week because of scavenger birds and and other predators and you know a variety of everything. I mean, a lion lion kills something, but everything else eats what the lion eats. 
until the lion goes and kills something else. But yep. let's just let's just say hypothetically that if a lion only kills 30 of something a year and not 50, one a week, and you don't take off the 486, and we do have 5,000 on the landscape, and the next year you've got 6,000, and then you've got 7,000, and then you've got 8,000, and each one of those are taking 30 big game ungulate animals off of the landscape in a year. 7,000, several years down the road, mm -hmm. times 30 is 210,000 ungulates that are off of the landscape. They say that we've got 309,000 elk. They say we've got roughly 380 to 400,000 deer. Where does the hunter come into that to where they take a per certain percentage off? Because you've got roadkill, you've got habitat loss, you've got winter kill, you've got disease, mm -hmm. you've got predation. Where does the hunter come in on top of that? Because if you look at our success rate on elk hunting, we are roughly around 9% statewide on all species, all seasons, all methods of take mm -hmm. for elk. Now that's cows and bulls and public and private and late and early and all the other stuff. But if, but if we're only taking 9% and all the other stuff combined is taking something every single day of the year for the remaining days of the year that seasons aren't going on, how much longer can we actually expect the ungulate population, which pays the bills yes. for parks and wildlife, to continue to be the war chest, so to speak, of being able to run a sustainable wildlife management program? And I think, and I've said this on several different podcasts and through several conversations, I think that they get exactly what they want by creating such turmoil of putting wolves on the landscape, having unlimited bear because of the season structures that we've been dealing with for the last 30 years, and no lion harvest, and throw some bobcats in there to kill some fawns and stuff and, and everything else. How long does it take for we to where we get to a point to where the hunters are going from 9% to 5% to 4%? And what does that do on the economic side? And what does that do on the the license allocation side and the opportunity side pretty soon. Now, granted, it's not going to happen probably in the next 10 years, but I think you're going to see exponential increases from 10 to 15 to 20 years. I think you're right. And I think that's the, I think you're exactly right. And if you're sitting, let's say you're sitting in Northern Idaho, listening to this, or you're sitting in Montana, listening to this, all those displaced hunters, they're going to go, a lot of them are going to go somewhere else. A lot, it's going to put pressure on resources everywhere else, it's going to make tags that much harder to get. I don't think people realize how much opportunity Colorado provides the United States. Like it's insane. It's, it's, it's insane how many you just said, I mean, it, they have, they have a bigger population of elk than the greater Yellowstone ecosystem talking. And I think that is right. I think that's accurate than Idaho. I'm quite sure that than Idaho, I think it's Montana and Wyoming. Like it's insane, the population. And you take that away and you take the hunter out of this and okay, we're not, maybe it's 20 years down the road, we're not issuing tags. I really see the writing on the wall and the way things are going, it could be the end of hunting. It's it's just insane to me. It's crazy. Well, and. And, and Travis, when you go back in, you say, see the end of hunting, uh, you look at the definition in these, in these measures mm -hmm. and they consider trophy hunting because mm -hmm. that's the catchphrase trophy hunting 
is killing, intentionally killing, pursuing, pursuing, wounding, or entrapping. You could put any other species in there besides mountain lions and bobcats. And, and what this does is it sets a precedent on the definition of trophy hunting. Mm -hmm. It sets a precedent on how legislators turn around and interpret it, commissioners interpret it, other states interpret it, hell, the general public and, and, and how they interpret it. Yes. Because you can't trophy hunt mountain lions or bobcats, and you have to, you have to surrender the parts except for the meat. Who the hell is to say that they won't do that with deer, elk, sheep, moose, bears, everything else? Everything. No, that's the thing, and it's it's not good. It really is not, and I really feel like they see a way in here in Colorado. I think they're going to just try to continue to get that foot there, you know, in the door, so to speak, and before long they'll have the door kicked right open, and hopefully, I, I just hope people will listen to this and understand like it's vitally important we get involved and i think sportsmen from everywhere can help out on this deal can you talk just briefly about the signature gathering process i know um so recently arizona if i understand it right they actually beat the lion deal in the signature gathering process can what are your thoughts on that do you think there do you just and i know it's hypothetical but looking into the future do you is that something that you guys are going to try to pursue is that like a lost cause i'm just wondering how that like what your thoughts are on it as dealing with this kind of stuff well two two things i mean they they did the decline to sign type deal down there Uh but they actually the group that stopped the ballot initiative went out and hired the firm that would have been the professional signature gatherers. Oh, okay. and, and so, so they, they, they actually forced the proponents of those measures to look at other measures to be able to do, but because of the requirements in Arizona, from my understanding, it wasn't feasible to go on a volunteer basis on a large scale to get the signatures that they needed to gather to be able to make the ballot here in Colorado. They've already, they've already proclaimed that they're going to do volunteer measures and that they have enough support to be able to do so. Now, keep in mind, when I say professional signature gatherers, they've got firms that go out for X amount of dollars per signature. And so okay. you look at the money side of it, if somebody needed 150,000, well, put it put it this way, we need 124,238 to get something on the ballot here. Mm-hmm. We probably need 170 or 180 or maybe 190 because all of those have to be certified. Okay, and it has to be signed in person, correct? Like, they have to sign it in person? Yeah, Yeah. it has to be signed in person, and then that signature has to be certified. Well, if if your certification process has a margin of error of more than 4%, Mm -hmm. then they're going to count every single one. You want to make sure that you've got plenty. Oh, over there, I'm with you. Yeah, and to have plenty, now it's going to cost you X amount of dollars for each one of the other ones that are above and beyond the ones that you actually need. So let's just hypothetically say that somebody needed 200,000 signatures to make sure that they got 124,000 certified and those signatures were costing them $5 a piece. That's a million dollars in signature gathering. But on the presidential election year with other measures in the state, you're likely to find that maybe those dollar figures go from four or $5 per signature 
to as much as seven or eight or ten dollars per signature. Oh yeah, supply now, and demand. Yep. Yeah, because everybody wants to turn around and get. I mean, okay. look, these initiatives here are number ninety-one and one hundred one for yeah, crying out loud. That's that right. There's another, you know, At so least, everybody's yeah. going to be out trying to get signatures. Well, if we can, if we could, you know, get a decline to sign program going, we would probably do so. But that's a hard deal when you start talking about volunteer signature gatherers that they say that they have because they're not going to pay. Mm-hmm. They're just going to get people that are that are really steadfast and they really want to promote this and they want to turn around and bring this across the finish line. Now, I don't know whether that's in their favor or our favor, but I can tell you that coming up with 190,000 signatures in the Denver metro area with the right amount of support is probably not all that tough to get 190,000 signatures from around the state. If they had to do that, that would be a, a, a tougher hill to climb, but they don't have to do that there in this case. So that's important. Once those signatures are gathered and then certified, then it will be confirmed that that language will be on the ballot under another initiative number besides 91 or 101 or whatever else they throw at the wall, because the numbers will likely change okay. just like all of the initiatives and propositions have. Um, so that's important. So basically when this comes out, if they do get the right amount of signatures, they get it on the ballot, it's going to be under something completely different. It's going to be under a different number. I'm sure it'll be titled, I guess, whatever the yeah. title gets assigned. And, and I'm sure, and yeah. that's the other thing is like that one line that those catchphrase titles, it's just like the clickbait on some website they want it to be like something catchy that's going to you know rally some sort of human emotion get people to say yes no what and what's great it's interesting to me like the wolf deal how close that was and it will be very interesting to see how this shakes out and how important that is stop and think of the repercussions of 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 this for them if we win if we win by one tenth of a percentage point, or we win by fifteen points, mm-hmm. it'll set the tone and the narrative not only for us but other Western states yes. about what they can prepare for and how they can turn around and build their armament up for what's probably yet to come in twenty-five and twenty-six. If we lose by a minimal margin, then it's going to create further divide on that urban rule side of things. And I, and I really honestly believe that we are in a position at this point in time, because of the wolf issue, because of the politics in this landscape, I think that we have as good of a chance at this level to defeat this. Mm-hmm. Because I think if people will pay attention across the board, and I'm not talking our community, our stakeholders, our constituents, I'm talking to the others, mm-hmm. the the middle of the road or what we call the in the wind crowd that, that might blow back and forth, you know, like packing peanuts in a windstorm. They, they, they don't know where they're going to vote until they find something that resonates with them. And some are going to come to our side and some are going to come to the other side. But when you look at the wolf deal from 2020 and now we're four years later, uh, there's not much of a margin of error for them. They have everything to lose. We have everything to gain. Yes. Uh, and I honestly believe that. I believe that that science and that responsible wildlife management uh, and logic will play more of a role in this election 
than it did in the previous one. And I just got to say this because a lot of the people that I'm dealing with in other organizations, and I won't criticize the organizations any more than what I already have, but it's because of their tax status. It's not because it's not because they're they're trying to do something nefarious or not be part of the team. It's just because of the way that their their organizations have been made up over the last thirty or forty years. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people that I talk to, and it's sad to say because it shows how freaking old I'm becoming, <laughs> that they weren't around in '92 and '96. They were in grade school or weren't yeah, born yet. For sure, a ballot initiative to take something away has not ever happened in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. A ballot initiative to bring something in happened in 2020 with the wolf issue. Mm-hmm. But a ballot initiative to take wildlife management away and take a season and a species off, even our community ourselves, the younger BHA guys and TRCP guys and National Wildlife Federation guys and they haven't been around to see this yeah. and they're sitting on the sidelines at this point in time going, we well, need to do something. What do we need to do? Who do we need to contact? We need to contact somebody. I'm not sure who we need to contact. They haven't been in this fight. And I think that it's going to pay dividends. If they wake up and smell the roses, they, this is just not about me and what we think. Yes. It's about proper science-based wildlife management. And if you really care about our natural resources, you better get in the game and you better turn around and tell the guy that you play pickleball with and where your kid plays soccer and where you shoot pool or whether you go to the, the, the high school or the college or the grade school for some sort of interaction, you better tell your damn congregation, you ought yes. to tell your coworkers, you ought to tell your relatives at, at any family function you've got, because most of those people that are somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 40 years old, were in grade school or elementary school. And that's the target audience that we're talking about. Yep. 100 percent 18 to 34 mm-hmm. and that, that's my it's, big, up yeah. us, it's up to us to turn around and lose this or win this and i think if we can't educate ourselves from within how the hell are we going to turn around and educate the people on the outside you pursue them you cherish them and now it's time to protect them this is the mule deer foundation Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. No, and that is my biggest fear too, is like I, with with sportsmen in general, it's crazy how disassociated. I mean, a lot of guys, they're busy. I mean, sportsmen, I mean, you think about your average sportsman running around. They love to go hunting. It's something they do every year. But as far as like this year round involvement, I hate it's, but it's just true. I hate to say it, but a lot of them just don't get involved. They just refuse to get involved year round. They just, and that's got to change. Like we're battling groups that have such 
they are so unified, so deeply connected on this. That's all they think about. It's all they, I mean, it's their like life goal. And if we don't start to come up and meet them at the plate, so to speak, and fight that, I, I just, I, I, yeah, I hope, I just hope people seriously get involved in this and don't ignore it and don't sit back and say, well, it's, it's somewhere over here, whatever. I'm not going to get involved. And I think, you know, like your wife, like wives, I know a lot of wives hunt, but there's a lot of wives out there too. Maybe they're not super familiar on this, but I think trying to educate everybody on the table about this. And what's crazy is like the mountain lion thing. Colorado, you guys have to take a mountain lion is a big game animal. And as I understand it right now on the books, you have to take the meat. Isn't that correct? You have to take the meat and you also have to have that carcass and the hide and head inspected within five days of the harvest mm-hmm. for parks and wildlife to turn around and adjust the quotas and do the inspection and collect their data off of that lion and off of that bear that one might harvest. Yep. And, and it's there so is I, more science. Yeah. yeah. There's more science that goes into mountain lions and bears and bobcats mm-hmm. than there are any of the other species, even though they collect data on the harvest of bighorn sheep and mountain goats and moose. But there's more science and data that goes into mountain lions, bears, and bobcats than you can even name because of the restrictions, the prohibitions, the quotas, the, the objectives, the models, the, the harvest. I mean, the, what we have to do, I mean, this shows how stupid, ignorant, dumb, the proponents of the first measure, which are the same people, even though there's different people on the on this measure, on the, on 91 versus 101, where it even came up to where there and at the Parks and Wildlife Commission meeting, experts had to get up and say, it's illegal to leave the skull and the hide in the field. Mm-hmm. They said, well, if, if they weren't really trophy hunting, they would leave it in the field. It's illegal to do yes. that. Because you have to have those inspected. Mm-hmm. You have to bring them out for inspection. So what did the opposition do? They changed the language and said, oh, you can't leave them in the field. You can only take the meat, but now you have to bring anything out and give it and surrender it to Parks and Wildlife. So they used our argument about the illegality of it and then turn around and use it to their sort of benefit to convince the general public that we're not trophy hunting. We're just hunting for the meat during those two-week seasons, even though there's no tools that we can utilize. But then if we are successful, then that other pieces and parts has to be surrendered to the to the agency. It's the hypocrisy and the ignorance of these people that come to the table that want to take something away that have no freaking clue what they're talking about. And then they use our arguments from a legal science-based perspective to deceive the voter and the title board mm-hmm. to accomplish what they want to get to be able to get on the ballot. It's just, and like the whole lynx thing, you know, it's just crazy. You can't harvest lynx anywhere in the lower 48. There, It's Endangered Species Act. Can't, but they throw that in there. Just uh, get into that whole human emotional thing. And it, it's just so frustrating. Yeah, there was a, there was a statement during, during the hearing of Initiative 91 where the title board even asked their attorney, the proponent's attorney, well, if lynx aren't allowed to be harvested, why would you have them in here? And the answer, not verbatim, but the explanation of the answer was, in case they ever become 
a game species, we never want them to be harvested. It's not why because it's hunting. <laughs> and can you talk like the funding? Who like what organizations are behind this or people behind this in Colorado? Like who is? Do you know who it is that's really pushing it? Oh, yeah. The funding. Yeah, if you're familiar with Wayne Paselli. Okay, I've heard the name. Wayne Paselli was a, he was the CEO of the Humane Society of mm-hmm. the United States. And they, they got rid of him because of sexual misconduct or allegations. So he went out and started this animal welfare action organization. Mm-hmm. So he and a gal by the name of Samantha Brueger with Wild Earth Guardians. Wild Earth Guardians is a major component of this, as is Defenders of Wildlife, mm-hmm. Project Puma, the Coyote Project. Uh, you, if you go to the Cats Aren't Trophies website and you want to see how ludicrous, I'm not trying to get anybody to go there and donate. Please yeah. don't donate no. there. Donate to where I'm going to send yeah. you after this. But, mm-hmm. but go to the Cats Aren't Trophies website. If you think this is about Colorado, you got your head in the sand. Yes. Go look at who's there. Go look at their language. Go look at their, their lies, their deceiving tactics. Go look at their strategy. And you tell me that if if you put Wyoming into that spot or Montana into that spot or New Mexico, yes, it's the same freaking tactics. You take Colorado out because if you look, it's not Colorado cats. It's wild cats, big cats, prohibit trophy hunting. It's all these catchphrases. All they got to do is change their strategy for the state. Yep. And they use the same roadmap that they've actually created this juggernaut here, if they're successful. If they're not successful, I think we blow them back to the freaking coast. They sit in the California and they stew for a couple more years to figure out where they want to go. But if they're successful here, it's going other they're going to set up shop and they're going to turn around and expand their net out to other states. For sure. And it always starts. This is what's crazy is these things always start. It's trappers they go after. It's it's cat hunting, you know, it's it's predators like they always focus and get a little foothold. And it's just it's bad. And it really is. I I know this term. It really is a slippery slope. And I it just absolutely it makes me sick. Um, I. And, and just, can you talk, so I, I'm just wondering, is there any other organizations that are helping on this deal? Do you, cause like, as I kind of read through this and I'm like trying to immerse myself in this, it seems like the silence is deafening. It's deafening from sportsmen. I see some of these Instagram, these guys with a lot of influence in that younger demographic, BHA guy it's like I don't hear anything from him it's very concerning to me to hear like just the silence from some of these organizations I do know there is some differences with the 501c3 and the 501c4 but god it's just crazy when I look at defenders of wildlife a 501c3 they are and they're right like they seem like they're right involved I just wonder isn't there a percentage some of these organizations could maybe push towards you guys or this fight and get involved? And I know there's going to be some listeners that are members of these organizations. And I just ask, like, try to get involved locally if you are. But what, what are your thoughts there? Well, first and foremost, I, I, I got to give a, 
a head nod and kudos out to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. RMEF uh, has stepped up on the initial stages of this. And people need to understand that we're still in the preliminary stages mm -hmm. because of the posturing and maneuvering of the title board, Supreme Court, and, and, the, and the litigation side, so to speak, even though it's not really, you know, law litigation, it's, it's court shit. Uh, but RMEF has, has stepped up and they're helping out significantly. Multiple chapters of Safari Club International on the state level have stepped up exponentially. Uh, we've got the Colorado Outfitters Association, the Colorado Trappers and Predator Hunters Association, uh, Sportsmen for Community, uh, multiple different sportsmen organizations and rod and gun clubs, and Muley Fanatics has been a, a big supporter. That's great to um, hear. That's I, I really yeah, know, I like those guys. That's awesome. And they're and they're tr everybody's trying to find their space to figure out how and when to facilitate. And, and appropriately navigate their individual landscapes. And mm -hmm. some of it has to do with year-end taxes. Some of it has to do with wait until 2024. Some of it has to do with potential opportunities to, to maybe uh, fundraise or do a call to action. And what I will say is RMEF not too long ago, about maybe three weeks ago now, in their newsletter, put out a call to action to get people to go to savethehuntcolorado.com, which is our website, and they did that to their members, a call to action. We've had other organizations do something similar. Now, not everybody yet, but some. And for those organizations to send their members to another organization's website and say, hey, this is about all of us. Mm -hmm. Not only is that a monumental task, it's a remarkable feat to be able to make sure that they get their members to understand this is not a Colorado issue. It is not a mountain lion and bobcat issue. Yeah, it might be on paper, but not when you look at the repercussions of this, when you look at the ramifications of this, not when you look at the precedent setting of this. And so what I will say is the grassroots efforts that we have not seen in my lifetime nationwide that we've seen on this particular issues over the course of the last 11 or 12 weeks since it started is the celebrity status that's been given to me in some capacity, not that I'm looking for that, <laughs> but, to, but to, to allow us to carry our message. The Steve Rinella's meat eaters. Yes. The Eastman, the Primoses, the Howl for Wildlife, your guys' deal. Uh, you, you look at uh, Robbie Kroger with Blood Origins, Chris yeah, Powell with Hounds XP. All of these guys have come out and said, we want to help. We want to support. We want to help fund. We want to help message. Uh, you look at some of the, the major contributing components of what we've garnered so far out of the industry itself about what they're trying to do to help message and what they're trying to do to help fundraise. And I will tell you without giving specifics that we've raised more money in 11 weeks than the proponents of trying to stop the wolf introduction did in 19 months well that's good to hear that really like gives me i'm glad to hear that that's fantastic and I, and so that's not laying a playbook out for our enemies to turn around and listen to this and say holy crap they got more than what all i'm saying is we have more and and i can tell you that we have more enthusiasm and it's it's nothing more than remarkable for me to deal with our accountants and our attorneys 
and find out that somebody got on the website and did a $20,000 donation or somebody turned around and sent a $5,000 check and then somebody else who was flat ass broke out of Mississippi turned around and sent us 50 bucks or somebody else that turned around and used to hunt here but doesn't hunt anymore sent us $100 or somebody that has business interest in Colorado that sends $100,000. These are top to bottom every single level that you could possibly incorporate and guys like you and guys like Charles with Howell and guys like the Renellas and I mean allowing us to be involved at that level is a is a message to get out and it's trying to convince people just what I said it's about it's not about it's not about one thing it's not about one state sure. uh, it is a it is a opportunity for us as the hook and bullet crowd to back up what we profess to support for the North American model of wildlife conservation. It's the opportunity for us to turn around and put our flag in the ground and say, no more. You're not going to cross the Colorado line and we're not going to allow you to cross the Arizona or Utah or Wyoming line. Yep. We are, we are garnering support from major groups and minimal groups and major players and minimal players. And I think people were gotten to a point where they said, holy crap, if it can happen in Colorado on top of what's happening. And I got to just say this. I really think that the wolf issue and the publicity that you get out of that and the Donald Trump Supreme Court stuff, and then you throw mountain lions and bobcats in on top of that, that's not hurtful for our free advertising. For sure. Because everybody's like, what the hell is happening in Colorado? Sure. I'm wondering. Yeah. I vacation there. I ski there. I hunt there. What the hell is going on? Yep. And how many people do you know, Travis, that don't know somebody in Colorado? Well, that's the thing. We're all so connected. You really start breaking it down. I mean, we really are. Yes, 100%. Everybody everybody has a connection. I'm convinced of that. And I think that there's an opportunity here that we can capitalize on momentum. And I think success breeds momentum and momentum breeds more success. And I think that we can honestly create a juggernaut ourselves that can legitimately counter the opposition and the lunacy that they're trying to bring to the table. That if you read the measures and if you go to save the hunt, Colorado.com and whether you make a donation or not, initiative 91 and initiative 101 are listed on there and you click it on there and it's a PDF and you read it. And if anybody reads those and takes the time without slitting your wrist, to read those and not drink too much during the process <laughs> and doesn't go to the donate button, I will be damn surprised because if you read it, it's not about here. It's about every single thing that we strive for, for outdoor recreation when it comes to hunting and angling and trapping and consumptive use and the management of our natural resources in this country. And I think it's a travesty. It sounds like I'm giving a freaking rah-rah speech here. I love it. I think it's a travesty that if we don't capitalize and sustain what the guys like Teddy Roosevelt and Grinnell and Pouchot and Hornaday, if we don't capitalize on what they established, what the hell good are we doing for the next generation in perpetuity to sustain our natural wildlife and resources? 100%. I, I, it's up to us. Yep, it is. And I really think it's so simple, like savethehuntcolorado.com. It's very cool. I I actually donated last week. I sent you guys money. 
hit a donate here. It's as simple as, I mean, and anything helps. I really would just hope people listening to this go there. Follow them on Instagram, Facebook, share their stuff because I really love what you guys are putting out and the message you guys are putting out. And you're so involved and you know exactly where we're standing as this is progressing along. And I really think the best use for your money, if you want to help out, I think it's with you, man. I, I just... And I'm, I'm not trying to blow smoke here. I think there is, you guys are clearly the leader on this. And I hope people will go there. The website, it's simple. It's, you can go through it. I just get on there and it's easy. Save the hunk, Um, your guys' Instagram is CRWM. Isn't that right? It's yes. Yeah, so Coloradans for Thank responsible you. wildlife management. Give them a follow. Yeah. I'm sure you guys will be sharing stuff along the way. And you guys have a Facebook as well. Yeah, the Facebook deal. And I've been trying to personally comment on some of that stuff to get people engaged and especially around the holiday season. But we've cooked, we've kicked out some really, really good videos. Yes. A I've been super impressed. Of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's not that I get tears in my eyes very damn often, but if you don't get uh, emotional about what we put out in the two and a half and the four minute videos about this, uh, I would be surprised because it shows a level of unity, collaboration, follow through, foresight, thoughtfulness to make sure that we are incorporating all aspects of every single thing that we do collectively and individually, whether you trap, whether you use hounds, whether you archery hunt, whether you muzzleload hunt, whether you're a bird hunter, whether you like to fish, whether you like to fly fish or bass fish, it doesn't matter. Every single thing that has happened over the course of the last 125 years and in support of the North American model of wildlife conservation, we have the opportunity to capitalize on all of those efforts. And those videos that we produced, tried to explain that in a short, concise time when we asked people to share them, turn around and post them, it, it, it explains exactly what we're dealing with, and it's somewhat informational and educational and entertaining at the same time. Yes, no, they were great. And I love, like I said, I said a, your mission statement, to enhance, promote, and defend the North American model of wildlife conservation and responsible wildlife management. I really, it, it's, it's epic. I, I love it. I appreciate what you guys are doing, and I just hope our listeners will get involved help you guys out sharing this stuff and i think it can it's a grassroots thing the more it's amazing you start to see these types of things over and over again and maybe you were the guy that maybe saw somebody share this and you did you didn't really catch on to it well pay attention next time and maybe a couple shares and somebody else pays attention and maybe you know we start getting some donations rolling for you guys because all of these things take money that's the thing is it's it takes money to get involved you guys also do some events like at the capitol um every year and i I mean that's a cool thing you guys are just you've been super involved and it's just clear you understand exactly how this is going in colorado you are super involved you're on various boards you know exactly where things are standing instead of trusting somebody that lives who knows where trying to fight this like you got to it's got to be a control and i think you guys have the right uh, you guys are attacking this in the right way I, I i'm tired of watching things get pushed aside 
and uh, and our community being taken advantage of because of the lack of participation. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm concerned that because we haven't seen collectively in this generation, we haven't seen the turmoil of what we saw at a broad level, you know, from ballot initiative type stuff. As I mentioned, you know, a lot of these guys were not even in, in school or not yeah. even born yet. We have to educate the younger generation to take our place to where they don't, they, maybe they don't have to fight as hard. Maybe they don't have to spend as much money. Maybe they don't have to turn around and try to reason and provide logic. Maybe it just happens because it happens. Yes. And I think that if we allow them to sit idle and stand on the sidelines and we don't put as much effort into the fight as what we possibly can, there won't be anything left for them to fight when they have their own kids and when they're trying to turn around and do stuff when those kids are 16 or 17 or 18 years old. That's exactly I mean, You're right. only looking at 40, 50 years down the road. Look what happened since the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has been formed. Mm-hmm. Look right. what happened since the Mule Deer Foundation has been formed. Look at the onslaught and the attack and the, the, the assaults that we've seen on everything that we stand for. And we think we're bigger, better, meaner, faster, stronger. And the, the enemy is a small percentage of the general public. But when you have an agenda, you can turn around and create a lot of money about a lot of different things to create turmoil on the landscape. And that's exactly what they're doing. Not everybody is against us. Not everybody is an animal activist extremist. A lot of our supporters are animal welfare activists. They want to see what's good for wildlife, Mm -hmm. but they understand that wildlife and agriculture meet hand in hand and head to head, and they benefit each other. The extremists don't want either. Yes. They don't want agriculture. They don't want wildlife management. They don't want any of it. They don't even want the human race, some of them. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. So that's... I look forward to future conversations, and I will tell you as we continue to build our efforts and gain momentum and get traction, look at the victories that we've already had at the legislature and the Parks and Wildlife Commission. We will not lose this, but we need everybody's support. Dan, I'd love to get you back on. Um, Maybe when we get a little closer to summer, I'd love like some sort of an update. If you have the time, I appreciate you jumping on with us today and it's just clear you're a passionate guy and i'm glad you're there man that's all i know i uh, thank goodness and i i would hope i hope someday i don't know who it is but i i really hope somebody will look at what you've done in colorado and the involvement you've had there and i really hope maybe we get a national organization or something spun up it maybe i don't know it's just that's the goal yeah i really hope so i just what you're doing it's awesome and there's not a whole lot of organizations like you guys i that i'm aware of i really am not like it's just it's impressive well sure appreciate the time travis and and i would tell everybody to really dig deep inside educate themselves look in the mirror what's important to you how are you going to make a role in your specific state for your specific cause and in the meantime, try to figure out how to help us out here because we need as much as what we can possibly get. Yep. Get involved, everyone. Serious. Everything. I, I, I say it on almost every podcast. I feel like no matter what your passions are, you got, we've sportsmen have got to get involved. That's my biggest goal is like to get sportsmen involved. It's got to happen. I sure appreciate the time. Dan, thank you very much. 